Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leader. I'm David Jenkins. And I'm Lillian Crawford. On the show this week, one of the year's best and longest films, Ryosuke Hamaguchi's Drive My Car, one of the year's best and shortest films, Celine Siama's Petite Maman, and in Film Club, There's Something Strange in the Neighbourhood, it's the original 1984 Ghostbusters. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, welcome back listeners, welcome back David, welcome back Lillian. Lillian, since you were on the podcast last, you've had some big life changes, you've moved, right? Yeah, I've moved to Salford, um, I'm working on University Challenge now, um, doing the the picture and music questions is sort of my main um, my main task, putting lots of lots of good films into the, into the quiz. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, that is for many of us sort of film nerd pub quiz types an absolute dream gig <laughs> yeah no I, <laughs> it is for me certainly because I, I was on the show a few years ago um so and I I found the whole experience quite terrifying and working behind the camera is is much more my thing yeah well wish you all the best with it and uh, always good to hear someone moving to Salford we've mentioned uh Salford a few times recently, home of Mike Lee as well as uh, me. Uh, yeah, so I need I need to go to home and and see um, see Naked while it's while it's on. Well, Naked, you know, it's, it's about someone scarpering from Manchester all the way back down south. So, yeah, uh, you know, maybe maybe fitting. <laughs> I don't know. But talking about Manchester to London, that's quite a car journey. Of course, one of our lead films this week, Drive My Car, is has a lot of driving in. Perfect. Uh, tie in there but David before we kick off the new releases any news from Little White Lies Towers? Uh, no just reiterating what I was saying last week about our new issue being on the shelves and uh, I would be eternally grateful if you went and uh, picked it up at your uh, nearest retailer or you can do it through our website and uh, you could have a little enjoyable read about all the films coming out in November December and you know uh maybe even if you're considering christmas gifts to some uh discerning relative uh some rarefied soul in your family who you who who you you you, you can't think of what to buy um yeah consider a, a little white lies subscription because we've got some uh hot stuff coming in the next year very exciting 
Also exciting is the fact that we have probably two of the best films of the year to review this week as new releases, so we should kick off pretty quickly. Let's start with Ryosuke Hamaguchi's Drive My Car. Here's a bit of setup for Drive My Car. Two years after his wife's unexpected death, Yusuke, a renowned stage actor and director, receives an offer to direct a production of Uncle Vanya at a theatre festival in Hiroshima. There, he meets a taciturn young woman assigned by the festival to chauffeur him in his beloved Red Saab 900. As the production's premiere approaches, tensions mount among the cast and crew. Forced to confront painful truths raised from his past, Yusuke begins, with the help of his driver, to face the haunting mysteries his wife left behind. So David, listeners who caught up with our London Film Festival dispatches probably heard about this film a few times because we spoke about it uh, a couple of times through those. But let's start from the start. Could you give us a very quick intro to who Ryosuke Hamaguchi is and why we should be excited for this film? Yeah, I'll certainly try. Um, I mean, he's someone I encountered in around, I think it was 2015. Um and and it was for his I th- I think third or fourth feature. It's a film called Happy Hour, um, which is I mean if you think this movie is epic, then that one is this Happy Hour is I think runs for five and a half hours. So uh, yeah, it's it's this kind of epic soap opera, and um, I think that the 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 thing that sort of um, characterizes his films that I've no- that I've noticed because I've I've seen every every one since then. Um, is that he he is kind of very comfortable with having these quite lengthy dialogue exchanges and passages uh, that that are that are kind of really engrossing and quite kind of philosophical in that kind of Eric Roma style, and um, and uh, yeah he's got this kind of preoccupation with um, with I guess I guess like performance it's like the idea of like when we're interacting with people are we kind of performing are we are we acting are we are we we kind of offering a kind of persona or a a version of ourselves rather than something that's honest and true and um i think that that's come up in all his films since um and yeah very much at the core of of this movie too it's kind of it's a film that um takes um the murakami short story which is only which is a kind of it's. It, I think what what's fascinating about this film as an as a kind of literary adaptation is that when when you when you when I watch an adaptation of a novel I love, I'm always kind of like thinking, oh, they've had to cut that bit out and they've had to squeeze that and truncate that, and it's kind of, you know, they've sort of drawn out the essence of the book, but they've not really got it. And when you what he's done with this is the opposite, and it, and it works amazingly well. Is he's taken a quite a a curt short story which runs to about like twenty five pages and sort of spun it out into a three-hour movie and which means that he's not only able to to sort of include everything in the short story but he's also able to sort of fill it out with lots of other uh, you know take take ideas and sort of spin them out in in new directions so um i guess without even talking about what the film is for me it's a it's a it's a an incredible and you know sort of almost sort of like film that you should like teach use as a sort of teaching aid version of a of an adapt of a sort of literary adaptation yeah that is amazing as you say happy hour several hours long this one a mere three hours 
um, adapted from a short story. Lillian, is it worth the three hours uh, time sitting in the cinema to watch this? Yeah, definitely. Um, in fact, I I often think that, you know, a film should either be, what, 90 minutes or or it should be three hours. It's the in-between <laughs> stuff that I find a bit, um, <laughs> a bit difficult. I think when you know a film's going to be three hours, you're sort of you're you're there for the for the full runtime, and it's interesting. David mentioning um, Romare's films because I think I think that it's very clear that Hamaguchi is sort of inspired by a lot of post Nouvelle Vague films. Um, the the filmmaker that I always think of when when I when I see Hamaguchi's films is um, Jacques Rivette, and um, in particular Out One, which has these incredibly long um, sequences of theatre rehearsals, quite sort of experimental theatre rehearsals and watching people just sort of play with performance and, and letting those sequences play out in full. And there's um, there's a lot of that in Happy Hour. Happy Hour, the one of the first um, sequences is sort of people doing these sort of trust exercises in a, in a sort of theatre space. And um, much of Drive My Car is about um, auditioning and then, and then, rehearsing for a production of Uncle Vanya, um, which has been done before, um, Vanya on 42nd Street by, by Louis Mao, another sort of post-Nouvelle-Vague director, um, did a similar thing. And I think there's something great about Chekhov as ripe material for this kind of film is because Chekhov um, was plays when they were adapted by um, Konstantin Stanislavski, who were using method acting and sort of um, redefining performance and and I think that Hamaguchi does that he allows people to just sort of exist in the world and follows their conversations and their um without it ever feeling boring you know there's there's not sort of um languorous pillow shots like Ozu it's 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 very much sort of there's always something to sort of stimulate um and I think that's just incredibly refreshing and rewarding to watch um, when we get a Absolutely. lot of Marvel films and so on. <laughs> well, we should say that this production of Uncle Vanya at the heart of this film is a multilingual production, which is not something I was uh, aware of in theatre outside of this film, so it was all blowing my mind and new to me. So you'd ha- mm. they would cast and then rehearse the, uh, with the actors having a language barrier, not overcoming that language barrier. So you may have Korean or Chinese, Japanese actors. One of the actors is performing in sign language. Yeah. And in a film that was at 90 minutes to pick your other perfect runtime, Lillian, <laughs> just that, that stage production would just be something in the background. It would be the reason to have all the characters together. But over three hours, it does allow us to really luxuriate in the practice of re- casting rehearsal all the way through to the final performance and get across this quite unique approach to performance, drama, theatre, which we focus so much on communication, verbal communication through you know, comprehension of language. Once you take that away and instead you're reacting to people based on body language or the rhythm of a scene, there's something really, you know, really you know, profound seeing that play out in front of our eyes. And that shows how this is a three hour long film. I saw this at the London Film Festival, I think in the same week that I caught up with No Time to Die, the week before seeing Eternals. So two films that were in the sort of two hours 30 to two hours 45 runtime that were, were crammed with plot and incident and characters. And 
we've, we've talked about those films before, whether they use that runtime well. There were think pieces about should we be allowing films to get, be at this sort of bum-numbing length at the cinema. And Drive My Car is such a full meal of a film because alongside that we do have the character study of the director and his driver and the, his backstory and the... the the uh, issues that he's working through from his life. But within that, it seems so, I'm going to say generous on Hamaguchi's part to give us such an insight into the practice of this drama. David, the length for you, of course, shorter than Happy Hour, longer than his previous film, Asako 1 and 2, uh, but the right length for you? Yeah, I think I think that we should... Uh, I, I think I want to emphasise, like, I, I totally agree with everything Lillian said and all those uh, reference points and that... You know, I think that this film is, I mean, Hamaguchi, when you read interviews with him, he definitely is a kind of hardcore cinephile and he's, you know, he knows the the kind of canonical filmmakers. And I think that his, this film is kind of, or in fact, all his films aspire to kind of like mingle with those, with those cats. And, um, uh, but, but actually like, I don't, I don't, I think, I think maybe it's worth saying that don't let that maybe scare you uh and don't don't feel that you maybe have to have like engaged with a load of other cinema to to sort of get, mm. kind of glean enjoyment from this because i think that in in the same way as like murakami um it, it's very it's actually kind of in its essence quite a simple film and it's it's just about kind of people talking about feelings and revealing things about themselves and opening up secrets at different moments and like in terms of like a drama and a, and a through the through line of the drama is very it's it, it's kind of very incident heavy in a way even though if those in, incidents are quite kind of subtle at times like someone someone revealing something about themselves and how that affects that person um uh i mean yeah not yeah the the, the length definitely wasn't an issue, an issue for me and i think you i think when you go in you de- you you know just i guess you know prepare yourself it's uh it, you know go to the go to the bathroom beforehand because uh, uh, it's definitely one where like you you really have to kind of luxuriate in the nuance and really like you know engage with what people are saying because it, it's one of those things where even though the, the the dialogue scenes are really lengthy everything people are saying is quite important and and it, it, it matters and it comes back and it's and it's kind of it's everything is kind of interconnected there's no real kind of just wasted wasted dialogue um you know and there's nothing there's nothing that's incidental everything you know it's a very very kind of pa- tightly packed three hours and things lead to other things so and i think that's kind of i think that boldness as well to just let these scenes run and to let these interactions kind of play out in a way that kind of is almost in some occasions like real time it's just such a such it's just what makes hamaguchi for me one of the best working directors today on a on a kind of slightly silly note just to sort of bring some funsies into this in case it is sounding a bit serious <laughs> um i was doing some research about the the lead actor uh hidetoshi Nish, nishijima um i don't i probably have mangled that completely uh but um i've got a, i've got a friend who who is um 
whose wife is Japanese, and we 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 he'd he'd seen uh, drive my car, and we were kind of doing a bit of a back and forth over email because um, we both love the film. And in fact, his name's Trevor Johnston. He's actually interviewed R- R- Hamaguchi for Little White Lies. So anyway, his wife sent him back all these YouTube links of uh, Nishijima's very very storied and uh quite large career in uh, tv advertising for deter like <laughs> detergent and it's very bizarre seeing this incredible stern stoic very unru- like very kind of cloistered performance in the film and if you go onto youtube and put his name in you there there are like hundreds of ads of him do- doing like toilet cleaners and and uh like like kitchen detergents and stuff like that and and it's it's kind of incredible to to think that he's he's taken that leap. <laughs> well, that's that is quite the footnote. Yes, for, <laughs> for Drive My Car, Dave. <laughs> I suppose that is something when we do watch films from around the world, we're sometimes finding these actors just as we are presented with them in the film. So they may have, you know, detergent-filled backstories for all we know. <laughs> But let's put some scores on Drive My Car then. David, I'll come to you first. In anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect. Um, I I think I'll give this... I think I'll give it the same as I give it in the magazine, which is a 5-4-5. A, a five, five. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I do think it's an incredible film, one of the year's best. And, I, and I, I think that, like, the actual kind of process of watching it can can at times be you know it's 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 not it's not like the easiest film to sit through um i think i you know i i I was definitely feeling that i kind of you know i'd love to watch it again am i going to find another three hours to watch it again but then at the end in consideration i was like yes i definitely want to watch this again so um yeah it's 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 kind of like um i think i i I definitely kind of felt that like there was more to it than i was maybe getting while watching it Lillian yeah um, I think I'd probably go the same same as David um, it's definitely one that I want to revisit at some point I, th- I think what's what's so powerful about um, Hamaguchi's films is as you were saying about all these different sort of dialects and languages and um, the sign language in particular there's a scene in a, in a sort of forest clearing which is entirely pretty much entirely silent um, which is just stunning. And I think that you could almost turn the subtitles off on this film and still find those performances incredibly powerful and enriching. It's like when you go and see a, a play and someone's performing in sign language, you might not be able to understand what what the words are, but the the ability to emote of the actors in this film is incredibly powerful. And as David said, you know, I was throwing a lot of um references around and yeah that's there but absolutely this is a film that i think i think you could feel incredibly enriched by just by sort of sitting there and letting it take you on its on its three-hour journey um yeah it's it's fantastic (laughs) yeah i i loved this film and it landed at just the right time for me i was really prepared for to be taken on a journey and be you know sit sit back in the back seat and let Hamaguchi drive for three hours and I took so much from this so I'd probably give this actually a maybe a four five four 
I was a big fan of his previous films, um, Happy, Happy Hour in Osaka 1 and 2, and I can't wait to watch it again to sort of confirm whether it's a 5 in retrospect. I should also say, not only is Drive My Car out this weekend, but any anyone within spitting distance of London can go and see the previously unscreened early films of Ryusuke Hamaguchi. Um, Ross MacDonald has programmed a series of those films, finally got the rights to show them in the UK at the close-up cinema in East London, which is such a treat for those people who live near London, unlike me. First and foremost, foremost, we recommend you go and see Drive My Car. Also worth mentioning, Michael, that that, that Hamaguchi has another film out in, I believe, February, (laughs) which is also amazing. I haven't had a chance to watch Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy yet, but that's a is that a, would, would we call that a diptych? It's a trip. A, a triptych. A triptych. It's, a, it's three short Gosh. stories, and the third short story is is mine. Is maybe the best thing he's done. I think. Well, that is a question for us and for listeners to mull over. <laughs> what filmmakers have made great films at short feature and super feature length, <laughs> as Hamag- it sounds like Hamaguchi has in his time. But listeners, that is Drive My Car. Do seek it out this weekend. Up next, we have another film that's been hotly tipped from the festival circuit, Petite Maman. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. After the death of her beloved grandmother, eight-year-old Nellie meets a strangely familiar girl her own age in the woods. Instantly forming a connection with this mysterious new friend, Nellie embarks on a fantastical journey of discovery, which helps her come to terms with this newfound loss. So Lillian, please set this one up for us. This is Celine Siama's latest film. Her last film was Portrait of a Lady on Fire. What should we expect with Petite Rommel? Ah... <sighs> Um, just pure joy, I suppose. Um, <laughs> it is. Saline Skiam has always been fascinated with children. Um, her first film, Water Lilies, in 2007, um, ha- um, was the first film that she did with Adele Ainel, and um, it's a really stunning film about sort of 
um, queer awakening in young women. Um, and then she made a, a, a film called Tomboy, which is um, a, a brilliant study of sort of gender identity in children and how that can be fluid and, and how people of older generations might respond to that and how kids are pretty open to these things and, and willing to um, accept others in a more sort of empathetic way. Skirmer is someone who absolutely believes that everyone should live as their authentic selves and never be judged for anything. She's an incredibly empathetic and warm filmmaker um, who I was honoured to be able to speak to um, for the for the new issue. Um, and I sort of told her how much her films had meant to me and, and that, that, that they sort of teach you that queerness is something that doesn't have to be sort of concrete or labelled and um, yeah I hope I hope some of that came through in the interview that I did with her and this this film is is quite different for her it's it's probably I probably describe it as her least sort of um, overtly queer film Um, it's certainly more about um, relationships between mother and daughter Um, I mean, it's literally about that, but it it is actually sort of a sci-fi film in some ways, which is quite different for her. There is this sort of... What's so beautiful about this film is that that there's this sort of strange um, time travel element to it, which is never explained or explored. You know, this isn't isn't Ghostbusters. There's no need to sort of throw some high-tech language and made-up words around. It's just that childlike acceptance of the way things are is just, oh, there is my mother standing in this clearing in a forest um, and I'm going to introduce myself to her and <laughs> and and make friends. And it's just divine to be able to, to watch these two amazing child actresses, um, Josephine and Gabrielle Sons, work with really quite complex material um, that 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 Skiama has has written for them and um yeah it's just moving and powerful and perfect <laughs> and it, it is it's so funny that we're talking about this film the same week as Drive My Car this film is over 100 minutes shorter <laughs> than Drive My Car it's barely over an hour in length it's quite a short feature and I suppose in a similar way to Drive My Car, what is Celine Siama doing with that short runtime? Because it's quite a perfectly formed film, in my, in my opinion. What do you think, Lillian? Yeah, it is. Um, it, I think that the reason why it's so short is so that you can just watch it over and over again. That you, I mean, when I, when I um, I was sent the the link to watch this um, this film to review it, um, I think I watched it three times back to back um which which you know makes it about the same same length as drive my car um because every time i rewatched it i spotted something else and these incredibly subtle details um saline was telling me that, that all of the artifacts in the film are are from her own life and for, um, things that her grandmother had things that her mother had things from her own childhood um it's it's a very personal film in a way that perhaps she hasn't she hasn't tried before um 
and you know you you stop you stop the cameras when you've told your story for Hamaguchi that can be after five and a half hours or three hours and and for Skiama in this case it can be 71 minutes um <laughs> I, I I respect that. I don't like films which have sort of <laughs> very very clear round run times because they've clearly sort of added some things in to make it run that long. Um, there, mm. There's the freedom of independent cinema that you can just sort of stop it when you want to. And it's another film that you can put on and really let let it envelop you. Mm. So it's a good such a good autumnal feel in 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 the woods with these children. So unassuming in a way, but then powerful in moments. It's just a perfect example of using the heightened metaphors of science fiction or fantasy, but not needing to then go in the hard sci-fi direction of explaining things away too much, but to get to the heart of what can be profound and wise when you get with something like a time travel uh, conceit like this. David, what did you make of Petite Maman? Yeah, I really liked it. Um... Uh, I, I think I maybe run a little bit hot and cold on Celine Sciamma, but like when I when I love her, like like I think I I I, I think I really loved her earlier films, Tomboy and Water Lilies, and was maybe a little bit less in, uh, taken by um, girl girlhood and oh, I know Sacrilege, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and uh, I also loved her little. She did it. She wrote a an incredible animation animated film called My Life as a Courgette which I believe we covered on the pod way back when. Um, but I think, I think yeah, all, for all the reasons that Lillian said, she's, she, she is this kind of vital talent and someone who's, who I, whose films I'm def, you know, extremely interested in and seeing what she does. Um, in, I, for, this, for this film, so another sort of, <laughs> bit of sideline story bit, that my daughter my sort of three-year-old daughter is at the moment completely obsessed with the film my neighbor totoro by hayao miyazaki um and watching petite maman it was very difficult for me to kind of differentiate the two because i think they're so similar there's yeah. that there are there like the more i watch i because I, I pretty much watch my neighbor totoro now like every other day uh, in full so i'm i'm sort of picking up all these tiny little things in that film that are kind of and, and i'm thinking oh that's a bit like petite maman and there's all these suggestions about the adult characters and them seeing themselves in the younger characters and 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 this this is kind of what petite maman is about like it, it's like a very a very simple conceit of like uh, i mean it's a film about empathy and 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 actually and actually trying to sort of do something that is kind of psychologic psychological and uh poetic not necessarily kind of boringly rigorous it's not i don't think it's trying to sort of like give you a big a, a kind of answer about you know child psychology but i think it's just trying to say something and delve into a child's mind in this kind of very poetic way and looking at how they might interact with a version of their mother who is like the same age as them. Um, I think the other thing I love about this film and, you know, sometimes it is kind of uh, the result of, um, you know, low budget or uh, wanting to do, make something kind of quickly and urgently is, yeah, the, as you say, it's like, it's, it's dealing in genre in a very kind of playful way. 
and looking beyond things like you know i think even something as subtle as having some kind of like um signifier that 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 this that, that, that there has been some kind of temporal remove that you know that, that that things have slightly changed when the when the when she goes out into the forest would have would have ruined the film for me and anything that kind of like tells you what's happening and like it you know basically kind of underlines the the magic of the film just would it would have completely killed it because i think what skiyama does is sort of acknowledges the fact that kind of you know a cut like the the most kind of rudimentary form of film grammar is time travel you know it's it's moving between one place and the other or one time and another and it's like why 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 could you not just use that and kind of you know and in a way you're kind of challenging the viewer a bit and 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 in and and actually getting them to sort of engage with what you're doing and saying in a way that you wouldn't do if you're just kind of telling them okay x has gone here and there's been a change so watch out guys um uh so yeah um it's a delightful film and yeah it it does have that kind of live action my neighbor totoro energy to it yeah in a good I, way i think the miyazaki the miyazaki connection you're you're drawing there is not only one that uh, Celine Siama herself draws. It is a, a very good way of characterising this film. It does have that sense of the spirit and imagination of a child and how they there is a wisdom and profundity within that. And she does make this film at the level of taking those those kids' perspectives seriously in the way that Miyazaki did. Let's put some scores on Petite Maman. Um, Lillian, I'll come to you first. Yeah, I just wanted to say that... Um... Celine did say in the interview that um, she'd love someone to make this as an anime um, or someone like Miyazaki to animate it. <laughs> she'd love to make more animated films like My Life is a Courgette, but apparently it takes too long. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm a massive Skiyama film as far as I'm concerned. All of her films are um, are five-star masterpieces and this is no exception. Five's across the board from me. <laughs> David, I probably I, I really like this. I probably give it fours across the board. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to give this fours across the board with the hope of rewatching it three times <laughs> in, in a row, like you did, Lillian, and maybe bumping that up to a five. And listeners, if this film intrigues you, do go out and check out My Life as a Courgette. That's a really wonderful animation. And also go back to the beginning of Celine Siama's films. I think that this does reach back to the likes of Water Lilies and Tomboy. If you've only seen Portrait of Lady on Fire, there's so much to be discovered in her filmography. Listeners, that was Petite Maman out this week, along with Drive My Car. What a wonderful weekend at the pictures. Let us know if you see either of those, or both of those, if you have the time. And let us know what you make of them at the usual channels, at LWLies on Twitter, or Truth and Movies at tcolondon.com. Up next, we have Film Club. And before Afterlife, there was a little film called Ghostbusters. In case you don't know the setup of Ghostbusters, the clue is in the title. Here is a synopsis. After a team of scientists, Harold Ramis, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, lose their cushy positions at a university in New York City, they decide to become Ghostbusters to wage high-tech battle with the supernatural for money. They stumble upon a gateway to another dimension, a doorway that will release evil upon the city, and the Ghostbusters must now save New York from complete destruction. So... Ghostbusters, what a long and winding road. So many 
paths we can take about this storied film. David, are you of the age that you might have seen this quite close to release? Or when did you see Ghostbusters? Not quite, uh, but I, I def- it was definitely one that um, I had um, taped off the TV and would watch uh, in kind of half an hour increments every morning before school. Um, and yeah, definitely kind of hit. I, I think probably the version that I had had taped off the TV had some of the kind of swears dubbed out or uh, for, for, uh, so 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 it was it was a more kind of family version of it but uh yeah i, I i've i've def- rewatching this again this week was definitely a kind of big nostalgia hit to my uh, very early youth in, in a good way or in a nostalgia's not quite it used to be way well um yeah it's i think it's a fascinating film and like uh, it's a I think it's one that that is I like the I, like seeing it again now with my kind of pretentious film critic hat on um <laughs> I think that the uh I liked I I think the first half of it is very very fun and funny mm-hmm. and then the second half where we have to have this kind of story bit with, like where it's all about the end of the world and monsters coming from another dimension to to sort of cut you know blow up New York or whatever it is it gets very tiresome for me. Um, I mean, it's it's a. I think that looking at the history of the film, it's quite kind of. I think a lot of people blame it for for a lot of bad things. I don't know if you ever if you ever like. You know, it's that thing of like, can you blame a film for other bad films that that have been made in its in its image? So like, this was like one of the first, if not the first, big budget comedy movies like what it was like a comedy movie that was that that cost like over i think it was like 30 million dollars which in 84 was pretty kind of massive and i think there was certainly a sense when they were making it that they didn't really know what they would do it like what what they had their hands on and was were quite surprised when it turned into this kind of 300 million mega hit at the box office um but then it definitely kind of if you look at the history of like big budget comedy, it's it's kind of littered with some of the most awful, reprehensible films ever made. I think, um, and so like I think that there's part of me that that kind of thinks the Ghostbusters legacy has a lot to answer for. Um, not least, it's uh, it's its own. I mean, another n- another sort of strand in t- of, of 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 inquiry in te- entirely, but like its own fat toxic fandom as well uh of of people who are kind of ultra nostalgic for for it as as a kind of like emblem of youth it is really interesting and as you say well if if you're like me and you believe that one of bill murray's great performances was as a guest on the david letterman show across uh, many decades there's a fascinating pair of um, interviews that he does with david letterman in the I guess it's 1984, where it's just before Ghostbusters comes out and just after it's ruled the box office. And beforehand, David Letterman's like, what is this Ghostbusters thing? And Bill Murray's kind of confused and doesn't really know how to sell it. And afterwards, they're saying, this Ghostbusters thing was quite big and here's the merchandise and they've got it on your face on a mug and things like that. So it really is just like the start of something and they didn't know what they had on their hands. Because for me, Ghostbusters is akin to Star Wars and Back to the Future, films that are created by very particular um, creatives, creative minds. 
and then was maybe perhaps spun into franchises that went beyond that and turned into something different. When I watch Ghostbusters now, I can just really see the DNA strands of the fact that these are um, people who moved to New York, so they're adopted New Yorkers, uh, looking at the city around them and being wowed by the history, the psychogeography, if you want to be that, that way inclined, of the world around them. Also, the fact that Dan Aykroyd actually does believe in the paranormal and believes in ghosts, so all that stuff he actually does bring to that. And even though it's the mumbo jumbo, it's actually um, uh, you know very strongly felt there. But Bill Murray bringing his loose comedy, Harold Ramis bringing a bit more of the heightened sort of stylized comedy as well. There's a, a lot in there which is bottling creative, you could call it genius, but certainly creative inspiration at a certain point in careers that would then only five years later with Ghostbusters 2 becomes something very different and the industry around it has changed. But we're the old old guys <laughs> with the nostalgia. Lillian, what, what, uh, uh, did you watch Ghostbusters growing up? Was this a first watch for you? What did you make of it? No, I definitely watched it repeatedly growing up. And actually, I think I'm probably one of the last people who would be able to share that sort of um, memory of, of, of re-watching a, a tattered VHS tape that had been recorded off the television. Uh, I think uh, yeah, we had both Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2 on it, and I would just sort of mm-hmm. rewind it and rewatch it with the little lines going across. And as as David said, I think it probably had some of the jokes missing. I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure, but it didn't have the um, the dickless joke, which is one of the best jokes in the film. Um, <laughs> which which um, I I remember seeing when I, I rewatched the film. Um, in 2016, having not seen it for a long time before um, Paul Feig's um, version, which I, I, I personally quite enjoyed. Um, I, I rewatched that again ahead of this. And I think that actually, as, as, as far as sort of a, a sort of spin-off remake type thing goes, that was quite fun, mainly because Brides- I love Bridesmaids and, and, I, and I think that Bridesmaids with Ghosts was kind of a fun concept. Um, but yeah, as David said, there's been an awful lot of sort of films made in its model that are truly reprehensible. The one I was thinking of when you were you were talking, David, was um, R.I.P.D., which is is basically the same format, which is one of the one of the most dire films I've ever sort of sat through. That was a misspent New Year's Eve when I decided to watch that. Um, but yeah, no, Ghostbusters is is fine. Um, the first half is is um, is very good. It's not as good as I remember it being as a child, thinking it was really funny and very silly. Um, I mean, it is silly, but Rick Moranis is great. That's mm. we don't have long to talk about this film, but I just want to I just want to say that you know, there's only a sort of a handful of of um, Rick Moranis performances, and this one is. Uh, is is great and he's also great in Ghostbusters too. Um I like to say I found myself I found myself actually laughing harder this time at Rick Moranis and actually ha- Harold Ramis as well. Yeah, definitely. Harold Ramis is really really funny They're, they're like, definitely the best of... two. Yeah. And then you've yeah, got like I, Bill Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd trying to be the funny guys and it's like mm, you're not quite yeah. as good. <laughs> but there's there's also this whole I mean we cut, we don't have time to get in it into it now but there is this like I think that Ghostbusters has also been kind of drawn into this whole academic world of like, um, as an, an example of kind of Reaganite economics done right. I mean, this is this this is this is all kind of if you look on the the Wikipedia page, it's all there. But like, 
it's kind of quite you know it's quite obvious from watching that it's a film that is celebrating private enterprise in a way i mean one of my all-time favorite films is is paul verhoeven's robocop an amazing film about the uh the the how why private enterprise is a very very bad thing uh and this is this is its kind of like evil twin this is its or it's kind of like evil opposite it's the film that is saying actually private enterprise is amazing you need to you we need to like you know we need we need these these guys to be doing this stuff otherwise we're all going to be ruined basically so um i'm like i think you have to either pick robocop or ghostbusters you can't have them both politically speaking <laughs> That's one hell of a take, David Jenkins. We want to, to end on. We, there are so many things we could say about Ghostbusters. My favourite trivia tidbit about it, very quickly, is the fact that Huey Lewis, the year before, of course, Huey Lewis made Bank of Back to the Future with the power of love, also made money off the Ghostbusters theme because they, took, they originally asked him to compose the theme tune and then went with Ray Parker Jr. Oh, and wow. he uh, sued them for plagiarism because the bass line was very similar to, well, the synth bass line was very similar to the Hugh Lewis, the new song, uh, and I Want a New Drug. And I'd go go and listen to both those songs side by side and you'll see the, the case that he was wow. making. Yeah, it does sound like uh, a Hugh Lewis song. <laughs> I did actually it. think, <laughs> I did actually think, what, listening, to the, listening to the song play out of the, over the end, the Ray Parker Jr. song, I was like, mm. this is actually a really great song. Like, from a technical standpoint yeah but why 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 did ray parker jr have no other career from uh, from it and you you've just answered that question yeah <laughs> yeah well there you go listeners i'm sure you have some thoughts about ghostbusters and maybe if you see ghostbusters afterlife you'll have some thoughts about that as well please let us know at the usual channels at lw lies on twitter truth and movies at tcolondon.com David, Lillian, thank you for joining me. This has been such a pleasure talking through the films this week with you. Up next, we have Ridley Scott's House of Gucci, the debut film from Reggie Yates, Pirates. And since House of Gucci is in cinemas, we're going to go back to one of Ridley Scott's very divisive recent films, The Counselor. Listeners, please subscribe wherever you pod. And if your podcast player of choice lets you leave reviews, we'd love you to leave one for us too. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Truth and Movies is a Little Dot Studios production for Little White Lies. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Michael Leader, and my guests this week were David Jenkins and Lillian Crawford. The podcast is produced by Jake Cunningham and Harold McShiel and edited by Steph Watts and James Payne. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.